Some critics say the ending of Mark 16, including Jesus' reference to speaking in tongues and casting out demons, is not authentic and should not be included in Scripture. Dr. David K. Bernard responds to this argument in this episode of Apostolic Life in the 21st Century, a podcast dedicated to helping modern-day believers live out the teachings of the first-century church. This podcast is part of the teaching ministry of Dr. David K. Bernard. Dr. Bernard has dedicated his life to studying the Bible and helping believers apply its message to their daily lives. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Anyone who's read Mark 16 in the New International Version has seen the following note after verse 8 that says, The earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 through 20. If you look in John chapter 7, again in the New International Version, there's a note that says, The earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7, 53 through 8, 11. What's going on here? Can you explain uh, why this note was included? And I guess the bigger question is, is Mark 16, 9 through 20 and John 7, 53 through 8, 11, is there reliable, uh, should, or should they be included in our Bible? Uh, that's an important question. And what we're talking about is what's known as textual criticism. So let me answer by explaining what textual criticism is, and then we'll go back to these two passages of Scripture. And for a detailed discussion, I have a book called God's Infallible Word, which is available at PentecostalPublishing.com, and it covers things such as the inspiration of Scripture, the canon, you know, what books belong in the Bible, uh, the text, which is what we're talking about now. How was the text transmitted over the centuries, copied by hand, and are there errors? How do we know what is the original text? And then translation. How do we know what's a good translation and so forth? And, of course, I take the position the Bible is God's word. It's completely true in everything that it teaches us. Uh, but the question of textual criticism is this. we For the Old Testament, uh, we have... Uh, you know, books that were written thousands of years ago, even for the New Testament, the books were written approximately 2,000 years ago. And they were copied by hand because we didn't have modern uh, printing or duplication. And so when you copy a huge manuscript by hand, there's likely going to be some small errors. So how do you know if uh, – and to compound the problem – the oldest manuscripts that we have, so say for the Old Testament, are, are about a thousand years old. So that means they're a couple thousand years later than the original. So there could be 2,000 years of transmission where we don't really know, we, we can't independently attest what happened. Then for the New Testament, the situation is much, much better. But still, we would have manuscripts, say, from the 300s, 400s, and later. So you're still a couple hundred years from the original. So how do you know what errors crept in? So the study of textual criticism is trying to find out what is the original text. And for most cases, it's fairly straightforward. Uh, now, I'll, I'll make some generalizations, but for the Old Testament, we have relatively few manuscripts, but the ones we have were, were copied with extraordinary care by Jewish scribes. And when I say extraordinary, they would do things like counting every single letter on this portion of the scroll and noting it so that when they made a copy and they would count, if they accidentally missed or added a letter, the count would be off. And so they, they took 
almost fanatical care to double check, triple check, do all kind of numerical studies to make sure they had an accurate text. Um, so our confidence in the Old Testament rests to a great extent on the extreme, extraordinary care of the ancient Jewish scribes, but also the um, discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 1940s, 50s, and so forth. We found scrolls from the Dead Sea that were a thousand years older than what we had. And so in one moment, we could compare a thousand years of copying. What did it do? And what we found is the manuscripts we have are highly reliable, that they were almost identical. And where there were changes is mostly spelling or obvious errors or obvious changes that don't affect meaning. Now, the New Testament, uh, not all scribes were so careful. You can see many errors. However, we have over 5,000 manuscripts of the Greek New Testament, far more than any other ancient book of the time. And we have a fragment. We have fragments from the second century. There's one fragment from the Gospel of John that's possibly only 20 years after the book was written. So in contrast to every other ancient book, we have far more manuscripts of the Bible and we have much earlier manuscripts of the Bible. So we can have a high degree of confidence. So yes, if you compare 5,000 manuscripts, and that includes portions, not total, uh, yeah, you can see errors, but just as a simplistic thing, let's say two manuscripts have a different word in a certain place. So how do you know which is original? Well, if 100 manuscripts have the word and only one manuscript is different, it's pretty obvious. Well, that one guy made a mistake. Probably probably a 100 people didn't make a mistake. Probably one guy made a mistake. So uh, textual critics have developed a series of rules like this to how do you know which reading is more accurate. So for all practical purposes, we can get back to the original text just by using these scientific methods far more than any other book. So for example, whatever you have read about Caesar, or whatever you've read about Roman history or Greek history, uh, we those are based on a relatively few manuscripts much later. So uh, if, if we discount the Bible's textual criticisms, we would have to say everything you've ever read about Roman history, Greek history, is far more likely to be bogus <laughs> because we have far more evidence for the text of the New Testament than any other historical book from that time or before. Now, having said all that, uh, so in principle, there could be um, in, in the New Testament, there could be some phrases uh, that maybe weren't original, and that really disturbs some people. And, but the modern translations usually... Um, will point that out and they will point if there's a phrase that was omitted or they feel like doesn't belong there, they will put a footnote. So you still have that phrase. And some people, you know, get very indignant about uh, this discussion. But if you just step back and take a, a look, no doctrine is affected by any of these questionable phrases. And in almost every case, if one of the modern translations omits a phrase because they say it wasn't original, what you usually find the same phrase or very close to it is in another place. So it's not as if the statement is never made. It's just a question of, did a scribe add it somewhere? Did a scribe duplicate it? So the error is not really one of, should this concept be there? The error is, 
is it should be at this location or that location or is it repeated or and so really you not only are all the major doctrines of the bible amply supported by the undisputed text but even the phrases and comments um are going to be supported throughout the text but you pointed out two of the biggest questions where entire an entire passage is under dispute and i would say based on my study i do believe that the ending of mark should be recognized and i do believe the story in john 8 which is the story of the woman caught in adultery should be there so in both cases i believe that a scholarly yet conservative approach to, to textual criticism would say, yes, these two should remain in the text. The issue for them is uh, they're, they're not present in two or three of the oldest manuscripts, although they are present in the majority of manuscripts. So the thought is, well, the earlier ones should be um, – respected more than the later ones that are their copies and that is an involved study which i do give all the evidence in my book god's infallible word but here's what i think is going on in mark 16 if you didn't have that long ending it would end with the women coming to the tomb they find the tomb empty they find the angel saying he's risen he's not here and the women were frightened and that would be the end of the book it seems highly unlikely that the book would end on a note of fear. And even though it mentions Christ's resurrection, it doesn't give his appearance. So the climactic moment of the gospel is gone. So just on based on internal evidence, I would say, surely that can't be the end of Mark. So maybe in, in, in some of the ancient texts, maybe a, a, a portion, the last page was cut off, so to speak. The last part of the scroll got damaged. And so maybe when somebody copied it, they had an incomplete copy. So I can see where a few early copies could have ended up not having it. But I believe that God would have preserved uh, the text. He would have kept his hand on it so that if there really is an ending, it wouldn't have been just completely lost to, to scholarship. And when you study the ending of Mark, it seems like the critics that are quick to to jump on it, it's because they really don't like the content. So yes, there is textual evidence, but they're quick to jump to that evidence because it talks about miracles and signs. It talks about speaking in tongues and uh, divine healing. And then there's this little statement, they'll take up serpents and, uh, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. And so because the vast majority of critics have no experience with the supernatural, speaking in tongues, miracles, signs, wonders, it's, it's embarrassing to keep it in, and it's easy to say, you know what, we don't like it. Of course, my point there would be um, once you get rid of an anti-supernatural bias, it, it make, it's much more reasonable at it. And even respected textual critics, probably the most respected uh, conservative textual critic, Bruce Metzger, said, well, even though we don't have a c a complete evidence that it was there in the ending of Mark, we do find it so many times um, in so many ways. And by the time the councils, actually, there were councils that decided which books belong in the Bible. And by the time those councils met, that ending was already there. So he feels like even though maybe it's questionable as to whether it was supposed to be at that location, we should still accept it 
uh, even if it was maybe some say Mark might have written his gospel and ended it early, but then someone else wrote it, but also under inspiration to finish it. So he feels like it should still be accepted, even though the question of who wrote it or what place it should be in might be open to scholarly dispute. And I would simply say, as far as taking up serpents, it certainly is not talking about the practice of some Appalachian churches of picking up rattlesnakes to prove you have faith. That'll make a lot of people, a lot of people feel a lot right. better about it. I think it's, it's not talking about, you know, the Bible tells us clearly we're not supposed to tempt God. So even when the devil tried to tempt Jesus, uh, you know, jump off the pinnacle of the temple and the angels will catch you. And, and he quoted scripture for that. And Jesus said, don't tempt the Lord, your God. So yes, angels will protect you, but that doesn't mean you should run out in traffic and see if the angels are going to protect us from getting hit. So that is, so yes, uh, as in Acts 28, uh, Paul was picking up sticks to make a fire and, and a poisonous snake came out and bit him and everybody thought he would die, but he just shook it off in the fire and God protected him. That would be a perfect example. Uh, and not that you should deliberately handle snakes, but if you get accidentally bitten or you get accidentally poisoned, just like you trust God for healing, you trust God for protection. Uh, I, I think that's an easy explanation for that passage. And in addition, uh, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus said, I give you power over serpents and scorpions and all the power of the enemy. And clearly in that context, he was talking about spiritually. So there could really be a spiritual application. He's talking more about in the same context of Mark, it says you'll cast out demons. So he could be talking about uh, you will be able to overcome you know, evil spirits, serpent spirits. So either way, both physically and uh, spiritually, th there's a perfectly good understanding of the ending of Mark that fits the rest of the New Testament. And and uh, by the way, if you want a full-length book, scholarly book that goes into great detail to explain why the ending should be there, uh, Nicholas Lunn, L-U-N-N, the original ending of Mark. So I do believe we should accept the long ending of Mark as part of scripture. The other passage, John 8, it's really interesting because it's it's similar evidence. In fact, there's, I think, a little more textual evidence for the ending of Mark even than, than the passage in John 8. And what you find, it sometimes is in John 8, sometimes it's in Luke, sometimes in other places. So there is some doubt as to where it really fit in. But there, the critics are much nicer and they will say something like, well, even though we're not sure if it was originally part of John um, or maybe it was written separately, but we do think it's an authentic uh, story from Jesus, probably written by some disciple, probably inspired, and maybe they later stuck it in John, maybe somebody else stuck it in Luke. So maybe that's why it wasn't in some of these ancient texts because it was written on its own, but we should still accept it. And of course, because it's such a beautiful statement of divine forgiveness that you'd hate to take it out. But actually, the textual evidence is about the same. And uh, so my summary is textual criticism is a legitimate study. Uh, we shouldn't just uh, ignore it. It is important, but it's mostly for the experts. It doesn't make a whole lot of difference for practical theology. But those two passages are significant, and I would argue they should be retained in the Scripture. Thank you for listening to this episode of Apostolic Life in the 21st Century. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment to give us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. 
We also appreciate it when you share apostolic life in the 21st century with a friend or family member. And make plans to join us again next time as we look at how the Bible applies to everyday life.